Well, like I said, it's good to be with you today. I will confess that uh, I am not feeling as uh, strong as I might like to. Uh, yesterday, I felt great. So I grabbed a shovel and did a bunch of work in the yard. And now I don't feel great. So I have a chair. <laughs> so I would rather sit down gently than fall down all the way, which I don't think would happen, but it's possible, and I would never live it down if I did. Open your Bibles, if you would, to First uh, Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. Our passage today is going to uh, focus on verses 6 uh, through 9. I realized as I was uh, looking at this and contemplating it, I thought, man, this really seems familiar. And well, I preached it last Easter, a year and a half ago. So I'm sure you have that whole sermon right on the tip of your tongue, right? Monty's got it right there. So if you don't, I'm sorry, Monty's got you beat. But um, I'm, I'm going to uh, work on uh, focusing on particularly verses 6 and following. And so I want to uh, read those even now, starting in First uh, Peter 1 and verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, once again, we delight to come into your presence as a congregation. And we pause even in this moment of prayer, to focus on You, to worship You, to lift up Your name, to declare that You alone are God and You are worthy of all praise, all adoration. Father, we seek to glorify You this morning as we look into Your Word and particularly in this passage as we see how you have blessed us. How you have blessed us in Christ. May we find strength. May we find direction. May we find hope from what you have done for us in Christ. The ways that you have blessed us in Him. So we ask that you would be honored in this time, that you would be at work in our hearts by your Spirit, proclaiming your Son to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't normally like to uh, preach beginning in the middle of a uh, paragraph uh, like this, but as I said, I uh, preached on this just a year and a half ago about, uh, I believe it was, and 
the first several verses, uh, if, if you have not memorized uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, I encourage you to do so. There is, there is hope there. There is rich truth that will keep you afloat when nothing else will uh, to be found in verses 3, 4, and 5. And so I want to just uh, look at that briefly as we, uh, as, uh, by way of introduction into our passage today. In verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is Peter, who is starting off this epistle, and he is glorifying God. He is blessing God's name. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That at the very beginning of Peter's letter, at the very beginning of this epistle that he gets to write to encourage the elect exiles of the dispersion that are scattered hither and yon that we see in verses 1 and 2. He wants to proclaim the goodness of God, the mercy of God and what He has done for us. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope that we who needed to be reborn we who were at odds with God, at enmity with God, in a, in a place of, of uh, despair, perhaps, in a place of darkness and confusion, and, and in, a, in a place of ignorance, yet He has caused us, by His very great mercy, to be born again, given us new life, made us new in Christ, giving us life where there had been Death. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. To a living hope. This isn't just some, some event that happened that is a spiritual thing and you can't really detect if there's any result from it. It's not just a philosophical notion. It's not just uh, some spiritual thing somewhere that someone talked about or something like that. That He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That we who are in Christ have hope. A hope that abides. A hope that continues on. It's not just a good idea that will get you through another day. It is actual hope that is actually alive and it gives life. So we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That the raising of Christ from the dead wasn't just a spiritual thing. It wasn't uh, just, you know, something that we can take or leave in our faith. You know, ah, you know, that's a big, uh, that's a big ask to, to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. No, that is at the heart of Christianity. That Christianity stands or falls with the resurrection. That no, God in fact, did raise Jesus from the dead, that Jesus actually did go to the cross, actually did die, suffered there, all those physical things that happened, and the wrath of God poured upon him so that he actually did die on that cross. And then God raised him from the dead. That 
that payment was required, that payment was essential, that there would be a substitute for us, one who would stand in our place to take upon himself the guilt of our sins. And he didn't just pretend to die. He didn't just appear to die. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross. And then God raised him from the dead. God gave him life from the dead. And that was, that was an event that happened that, that guarantees our own resurrection, that guarantees that, that God, when he looked at Christ bearing the weight of all of that sin and all that guilt upon him, all the way to death, that God accepted his payment. And God said, to me, that is acceptable. And he gave new life to Christ so that he raised him from the dead, so that when you and I look to Christ, when you and I trust in Jesus, the one who died on the cross for us, that we, we don't just have to you know, really hope that, um, that God liked Jesus enough or that God liked Jesus' sacrifice enough that, uh, that we might have some benefit from it. No, we can look and see that our sin was placed on Christ, was punished in him, and God was satisfied. How do we know? Because God raised him from the dead. And he was seen by over 500 witnesses, walking in their midst, talking to them, teaching them. Clearly, God had raised him from the dead. And so that's how we have this living hope that when we look to Christ, we know that we have life in him by faith in him because God accepted his payment in my place. To an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, he says. What is this inheritance that we have? Well, it's glory. It's, it's never-ending glory. It's never-ending access to God's very presence. That's our hope. That's what we have to look forward to in Christ. That's the hope that is there before us, this living hope, that we will receive an inheritance that is imperishable, meaning it can't, it can't go away. It can't be destroyed. It is imperishable. It continues. It lasts. It is undefiled. And it is unfading. It continues on and on. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the gospel that he leads off with to encourage us by pointing us to the gospel, pointing us to the hope that we have in Christ that is a living hope, that is an enduring hope, that doesn't fade, will not disappoint. But then he says in our passage today, in this you rejoice, in this gospel you rejoice, we call it to mind. We can celebrate what Christ has done. We can celebrate what we inherit in Him. We can celebrate what is ours by faith in Christ. And yet, He notices the same thing that you and I notice. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There is grief. And He gives us here in this verse 6, Grief's nature, and grief's nature is circumstantial. There is genuine grief that confronts us. 
That we as Christians, though the gospel is true and, and though we look to Christ and we find verses 3, 4, and 5 to be true for us, giving us hope, giving us joy, yet at the same time there is also grief present in the Christian life. We're not those who go through life blindly ignoring grief as if it weren't there. As if we could plug our ears and say la 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 and, and pretend that there is no grief in this life. There is grief. There is very real grief. And one thing that's true about Christians is that we understand grief. Maybe not immediately. Maybe it takes time. We understand grief in a, in a different and in a deeper way than the world does. Rather than ignoring grief, we recognize grief. We recognize that when someone dies, particularly when someone dies apart from Christ, there are eternal consequences. And the unbeliever doesn't understand those eternal consequences. The world doesn't understand what a moment of grief that point is. And how deep and how painful and how lasting is that grief. The Christian realizes. We understand there are eternal consequences. We understand that eternity is real. There is really a place called hell where those who haven't wanted God in this life will get eternity without God. And it's awful. So we understand grief. We don't ignore grief. But at the same time, even while we understand that there is grief, yet we have this living hope at the same exact time. So that we Christians, rather than being schizophrenic as if, as if it's a bad thing to grieve and hope simultaneously, the Christians understand we do grieve and hope simultaneously. And even with the deepest grief, there can be joy in Christ. And even while we celebrate, even while we rejoice in the gospel, these things that are true of uh, us who are Christians in verses 3 through 5, yet we grieve simultaneously knowing that there are those who don't believe that. There are those who would keep themselves at arm's, arm's length for many of those blessings. So we Christians grieve even while we rejoice. And that's what Peter is saying here in this, we rejoice though we are grieved. The first circumstantial aspect of grief is that it is temporary for a little while. Now, I was, I was sick for a solid week and a half, okay? And that's about all I care to be sick, okay? And it didn't seem like for a little while. It didn't seem temporary, right? It seems like it goes on and on. And, and uh, you know, my wife is the energetic one of the two. I'm very happy to take a nap. I thought, hey, I'm just going to hang out in my room. I'll read some books. I'll take some naps, and then I'll be over this. It was awful, all right? You can only nap so much. Even I can only nap so much, okay? And then you're ready to move on. It didn't seem all that temporary. It didn't seem like it was only for a little while. But the fact is, it was a week and a half, all right? It was temporary, right? But even, 
even the, the, the greater suffering that we face in life. What if it goes on for a year? What if the suffering that we face goes on for five years? Or 20? Or 50? Yet in the grand scheme of things, when we think from the perspective of eternity, even 50 years of suffering, which is legitimate suffering, is temporary. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we looked at a few weeks ago, Paul had said, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the, bo- in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Sometimes I like the word always. I don't like the word always in this paragraph. We're always being given over? Well, that sounds enduring. That sounds heavy and painful. That sounds like something that you know that, that, uh, that you would think about a lot, that would weigh you down, and yet, how does Paul refer to it? At the conclusion of that chapter in verse 17, he refers to all of that, the always being given over, the, 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 the always suffering that, that, we, that we are suffering. He refers to that as this light and momentary affliction that produces in us an eternal weight of glory. Paul, who just said always, 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 and I wanted to cry for mercy, stop saying always. He says that was momentary light affliction. And he's not making light of suffering. He's not making light of hardship. He's looking at suffering and looking at hardship from the perspective of eternity. And as he does so, he says, it was light. It was momentary. It was like when you go outside on a, on a, on a cold day and you, and you breathe and you can see your breath. And then it evaporates. That's what that suffering that seemed like it went on and on and on from the perspective of eternity is temporary. And so grief's nature is temporary, first of all, and second of all, it's varied. It's varied. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Right? It seems like the trials that we face are not just one type of trial, usually, right? Maybe there's the threat of illness, or maybe there's actual illness. That's a grief that you're going through, or maybe simultaneous with that, you've got financial hardship. And you've got job insecurity. So while you're sick or while you're dealing with sickness or while you're uh, undergoing the threat of sickness, at the same time, you're wondering how you're going to pay, be able to pay your medical bills. How, how are you going to be able to keep going as a family? It seems like it piles on, right? When it rains, it pours. So you might have some kind of financial hardship or some job insecurity. And then... You might even have something going on in relational problems that just won't end. Maybe within your own family, there's this person, this individual that you struggle with. Maybe it's 
you know, uh, your, your brother or, or something like There's someone in your family that you just struggle with and you, you just feel like if we could just get this resolved, the rest of life, would, you know, I could, I could deal the, w- w- with the illness aspect. I could deal with the fact that I don't have enough money to pay my medical bills if I just didn't have to struggle in relationship with family also. Right? It kind of comes in piles. Or maybe it's some spiritual struggle. Maybe there's, maybe there's a, some spiritual thing that you're going through that you, you struggle to believe God in the midst of this difficulty. You know you should. You try to read your Bible. You try to direct your mind to Christ. You try to look to Him. But you find that it's a struggle while you're struggling with these other things. Seems like the kinds of struggles that we face are varied. There's no shortage of the type of struggles that we find ourselves facing. So the question, thirdly, is why do these things happen? Why do these things happen? Well, I've noted that they are ordained by God. And probably some of you have questions in that. You think, well, you know, the, the fear of illness, the threat of illness, or perhaps the illness that I've experienced... Clearly, I know why it happened, because it's from coronavirus, right? There's this coronavirus going around, and it's got people sick, and I can point to that, and I can see my illness came from that. So, yes, I know the cause, right? but that's, that's not the ultimate cause. That's the visible cause. I mean, I don't, you can't see coronavirus, I guess. I mean, I, I can't see coronavirus, right? But it's, it's, it's proximate. It's right here. That's the easy answer. You know, why did you get sick? Well, COVID-19. Well, yeah, but let's, that's the easy answer, right? That's the one that's close. Or maybe when you look at your economic hardship that you're going through and your job insecurity, maybe you can point to, you know, certain government policies that, uh, that have affected you. And so you can say, well, why am I struggling financially? Well, it's because of these government policies or because of this other economic situation that is beyond my control. But that, that's really the easy answer. That's just the proximate, that's the visible answer for why I'm going through this difficulty or in the, the struggle in my family, right? I could point to the person. <laughs> I don't have to look very far and I can say, it's this person that's the cause of the problems, but that's the easy answer also. That's the visible cause. That's the proximate cause. Peter says here, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved. Who determined it was necessary? You didn't determine it was necessary. I didn't determine it was necessary. God himself, who gives the living hope of the gospel, has determined it's necessary for me to face this grief. He has determined. It has been ordained by God. That is the ultimate cause. There are visible causes. This person's the cause of this hardship. This illness is the cause of this pain and, and, and those sorts of things. But, but the, the ultimate cause is that ultimately, somehow, at the hand of God, He decided to give me a trial. He decided that for me, it would be necessary. So there's a point of application here. Don't Don't forget that God is at work in all the events going on in your life, 
including the present trials that are bringing you grief. God is at work. He somehow is the ultimate cause that He determined it would be necessary for you to face something in your life. And thus, that thing comes into your life. And so let us not forget that God is at work in us and in our situations. I think it's very easy to forget that part. It's very easy because I can see what is the cause of this struggle. I can see that person or I can see that thing or I can, I can you know, I can see. And, and I think that's really the problem. And so I focus on that and I just rail against that, uh, th- that problem when I need to remember, yes, that may very well be a problem and I need to resolve things with this person or I need to work through this issue or, or whatever. But it is ultimately God behind that who determined that it would be necessary for me to face that trial. And so I can step back a minute and I can release my, you know, my fervor in struggling against this near cause and I can deal with the ultimate cause. And I can rejoice that this thing, whatever this thing is, has come to me through the loving and merciful hands of God. To me. Designed for me. Because he determined that it would be necessary. As we move on to verse 7, we see that grief has a purpose. This grief that he's talking about has a purpose, and that purpose is faith. Verse 7. So we've been grieved by various trials, so that, verse 7, the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Faith's genuineness is revealed in the midst of this grief. Faith's genuineness is revealed in the midst of this grief, in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this difficulty. Genuine faith is a faith that continues to trust in the object of that faith, even in the midst of hardship. Continuing to look to Christ. The person with genuine faith recognizes that his only real hope in all of this opposition, in all of this persecution, in all of this hardship, all of this difficulty that he faces, his only real hope is Jesus. And so even in the midst of that adversity, Even in the midst of that pain of the grief that weighs on him, it ultimately causes him to cling all the more to Christ, knowing that that's where his hope is. The testing that goes on actually reveals the nature of the faith. The hardship, rather than being a challenge to the faith, that hardship actually shows, proves, puts on display the genuineness of that genuine faith. We, when we lived in Russia, there was a family we worked with, and husband and wife had both grown up in the church uh, during some different times, but uh, while we were there, we kind of worked with them, and, and then after a bunch of Americans had to leave, the missionaries had to be pulled out because of different reasons and whatnot, and now it was time for the church there to stand on its own. 
There wasn't money coming in from the West. There wasn't leadership coming in from the West. There wasn't those sorts of things. Now they were on their own. There was no accountability for the leadership of these churches. And some of the churches accepted that challenge and they moved on and grew. But I can think of one man in particular that when, when the structure, the accountability, the provision, the ease was removed when the missionaries left, it left this guy on his own. And it wasn't long before he left his wife. It wasn't long before he left the faith. It wasn't long before he married someone else and joined the Russian Orthodox Church. Doing all the things that it takes to dodge the difficulty of life as a pastor in that context. And so here, in that situation, we have a revelation of what his faith was like. But for for the one who knows Christ, for the one who truly trusts in Him, the, the pressure is real, and the pressure can cause you to falter and stumble. But in the end, that grief puts on display the genuineness of your faith. That even in the midst of all the grief, and even in the midst of the suffering, you find yourself trusting Christ because you've got nowhere else to go. And so you cling to Him and you hope in Him even in the midst of all that difficulty. So as a point of application here, don't, don't hate the trial. Don't hate the trial. Instead, try to see it as the instrument being used by God to unveil the genuineness of your faith. He is the one who has determined that it is necessary for a little while to go through this grief. He is putting on display the tested genuineness of your faith. And such a faith is more precious than gold. More precious than gold. I love how Peter uses the example uh, comparing with gold. Normally it would be kind of the idea that, you know, gold is really precious and so is your faith. But he says, no, gold is really precious and your faith is more precious. It is more blessed. That gold, you know, it lasts a long time and it's pure and it's useful for all these different things and, and uh, you know, it's kind of uh, inflation-proof and it's, you know, you can pass it down from one person to another and all those sorts of things that are valuable about gold. And now we know you can put it in electronics and do all kinds of other stuff, right? Value, valuable. Uh, gold is a very valuable thing and yet it pales in comparison to genuine faith. Pales in comparison. That when we as Christians see another Christian go through hardship, real, genuine hardship that I don't want to go through, and we see that person go through that, and all the while we see their faith being shown, and we just think, that is amazing. What would happen to me if I went through that difficulty? I don't know. I don't really care to be tested that way, but this person's being tested and you can see a genuine faith that is more precious than gold. That is something glorious that, that, we, that, that we get to show to the world. That, look, this person has faced hardship like we can't imagine and there is the faith standing strong, trusting in Christ, looking, looking to Christ for this living hope, even in the midst of that difficulty. We have friends who are uh, in the military and uh, uh, facing difficult decisions because the, the, 
mandate has come within the military for everyone to receive the vaccine, and this person has a conscience. Uh, yeah, this is these are actually multiple people have uh, a problem with with taking the vaccine. It's against their conscience, and so what do they do? Well, I'm thinking of one person who has been in for 19 years as an officer. I don't know a whole lot about the military, but 20 is the magic number. And and he's facing a situation where he may be run out of the military after 19 years of honorable and faithful Christian service in the military with no retirement. Busted out at 19 years because of this. And when you look at his faith, when you look at the faith of his family as they're facing you know, something that they thought they could look forward to in their family. This retirement, this thing that's coming, and we can make some changes, and, and we're going to be in a new place in life, and, and all of these years of hard work and, and whatnot will pay off because of that retirement that comes and makes some other things possible. Risk. It's at risk. It will likely not be there. And this family looks to Christ, believing in Him that the living hope that they have in Christ in eternity is far greater and will sustain them through the loss of retirement. It's beautiful. And I don't wish that on them. I would rather a different outcome. But you see the tested genuineness of their faith shining through in a glorious and glorious way. And this kind of faith is applauded by Christ did you see uh, how, how it plays out there? We may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not only do we marvel at this kind of faith, not only do we look and say, how did you believe Jesus in the midst of that hardship? How, how did you face those kinds of grief and, and, and trial and trust Christ and walk with Him like that? How did you do that? Not only are we amazed... Christ looks and he is overjoyed. He smiles at them and he applauds their faith. He rejoices to see the same faith that we do. To us, it's kind of a mystery. It's not a mystery to him, but nevertheless, he loves to see it and he applauds it and it results in praise and glory and honor. It results in well done, good and faithful servant. Simply for looking to Christ in the midst of hardship. This faith's nature or this faith's outcome, the last couple of verses, is blessing. It is blessing. Look at verse 8. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you've not seen him, you, you love him. There is, a, there is a love for Jesus that is part and parcel with this kind of faith. Right? If you think about, you know, who wrote this? This is Peter. Peter's a relatively famous apostle, you know. He was there for most of the stories, and he was on the wrong end of the thing quite a bit. But he was always there. He walked with Christ. Right? He, he walked with Christ on the water. He was there. Just, when Peter thinks about Christ, he remembers. He remembers what Jesus was like, the look on his face as Peter was walking towards him. He remembers the look on Jesus' face when he was being, when, 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 when uh, he was being rebuked, whether when Peter was rebuking Jesus or the other way around. 
He remembers walking with him. He has a love for him because Jesus is his Lord and he remembers. But he's writing to a congregation here that hasn't seen him. That's us, by the way. When we think about Christ and when we uh, think about walking with him, we're not remembering walking with Jesus on the shore. We're not remembering when we got rebuked by him. It's, it's by faith. For Peter, he's looking and he's remembering, but he says, oh, what a glorious thing. You haven't even seen him and you love him. How amazing is that? How wonderful is that? What a, what a testimony to how glorious Jesus is that you and I haven't even seen him. And yet by faith, we love him. We want to be with him. We want to walk with Him. We want to know Him better. We want to make Him known to other people around us. There is a love for Jesus that a true faith demonstrates. That sometimes you hear people talk about Christ. Sometimes you hear people talk about Christianity or, or whatever. And, and, and there seems to be a, a lack of affection for Jesus. A, a lack of love for Him as if as if we're talking about a philosopher or a concept instead of a Savior who gave himself for me. Now, I'm as stoic as any other person, and I'm not always going to burst forth with emotion in conversation, but you keep talking and you'll hear it. A person who has genuine faith, there is a love there for Christ. Because we recognize, though I walk through this world and I deal with these griefs and I deal with these difficulties in this life, yet there is one. There is a Christ who redeemed me. And one day I will walk with Him face to face. One day all of this will be set aside and I will be there in His presence. And I don't have to worry about this stuff anymore. I don't have to worry about my temptation to sin. I don't have to worry about my sin. I don't have to worry about being sinned against. I will walk face to face with Christ. There is a love. And Peter says, though you, you haven't seen Him, yet you love Him. And though you, though you don't now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We still don't see Him. Some of us would like to. Sometimes it, we feel like it would make things easier if I could just, you know, just chat with Jesus a little bit. Like if I could just be there in a time machine and I could talk to him or something like that. No, it is blessed and it is glorious the fact that we know Christ by faith. Not by memory, but by faith. And it gives us a joy that even when we look at the world around us, we look at the difficulties that we face. And that's why I'm preaching on this topic because... Because as, as sick as, you know, I, I wasn't all that sick. I, I, I didn't like it, okay? And, it, and it's, it struck me in my heart in a way I was surprised that I would be downcast. Well, because I had a cough, because I was a little weak, and because I was in bed. And, and like it wasn't, it has been terrible for people. It wasn't terrible for me. And I just thought, ah, my mind was drawn to the suffering around me. Suffering that, that I've gone through or that other dear ones have gone through or that they're facing. And when I hear about others who are going through difficulty, it just weighed on me. And I just thought, this is heavy. And he says, though you don't now see Jesus, 
Yet you believe in Him. And you rejoice with a joy that is wonderful by faith. And so I don't know what you have been going through. I don't know the difficulty that you have faced or that that uh, maybe you haven't actually faced it, you've just feared it. That, that was kind of a little bit of my issue. I wasn't even actually facing real hardship. I was just kind of fearing that it might come or something. I don't know. Maybe you're facing a similar deal with the military like I, like my friends I was talking about. Maybe you've got problems in your family. Maybe you've got other health concerns that that we know about or maybe that we don't know about or some other unnamed category that I can't even comprehend and and don't know about. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what what grief is there. But the point that Peter is making and the point that I want to make with you today is that even in the midst of that grief, God is at work. He is at work dusting off your faith, as it were, so that we can all see it. And it'll be put on display, and it'll be glorious, and it'll be something that we rejoice in. It'll be something that Jesus rejoices in, and it'll be something visible to the world. It's something that gives joy. Even when there's fear of hardship, even when there's grief, And so this morning, I want you to come away with the same encouragement that I receive from uh, these words here. That the gospel is that powerful. That it gives joy not just in that moment where you first trust Christ, where you you first look to Jesus and realize, "I I have sin, and that's a problem before God for me. I'm going to bear God's wrath. And you look to Christ and you find that He has paid the penalty for your sin. You trust in Jesus and you find that in Him you have forgiveness and you have a right standing before God. That moment of of joy, the gospel is so much more than that. Because that moment of joy is just the beginning. It's like a foretaste. You're just beginning to learn what it means to be at peace with God. You're just beginning to learn what it means that no matter the grief that I face, no matter how much difficulty comes my way, yet I have a living hope. I have a living hope, and I will genuinely grieve, and I will do so with joy. And I will rejoice, and there will be genuine grief even in the midst of that. As I look to Christ, and as I trust in Him, even in the midst of difficulty, so... I don't know what you came here with this morning. I don't know what may be grieving you. Those things may be as as painful as anything you have ever faced in your entire life. They may be lengthier than you could have imagined would be possible. But I want to encourage you this morning to rejoice in the Lord Jesus. The living hope that we have in our salvation in Him. There is joy even in the midst of that difficulty. And for some of you, you, you have people in your lives who, who are 
you're, you're kind of wishing they were here to hear about this hope that's in Christ. You were kind of wishing that they were here to, to be directed towards Christ and, and rejoice even in the midst of their grief rather than merely grieving. Take that message to them. Take that message of Christ to them and encourage them that the grief is, is, is legitimate. It's genuine. It's heavy and it hurts. And there is joy in Christ even in the midst of that. So that we hold on to both simultaneously. Not, not ignoring the hardship, not ignoring the difficulty and the pain that is out there, but all the while finding hope in Christ. I find hope in Christ even in the midst of that difficulty, and it's my desire that you would this morning too. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in Christ we deal with reality. That we don't pretend, we don't fake it till we make it, we don't, uh, we don't come here to uh, take some sort of uh, sedative or some sort of painkiller that makes the, makes the pain number for a while. No, we acknowledge the pain. We acknowledge the difficulty, the trials that we go through, but even as we do that, we realize that those trials come to us by your good hand ordained by you. And they will strengthen our faith and they will put our faith on display. And I can't comprehend that, but I believe your word. Father, I pray for each one this morning. I pray that we would go out of here with our eyes fixed on Christ. That where there was maybe an unbearable grief, that there would be joy mixed in there. That we would look to this Christ that we have not seen and yet we love him. And we don't see Him now, and yet we believe in Him, and we have an incredible joy from Him that permeates all of life. Father, thank You for Jesus. I pray that even this morning, that anyone here that doesn't know Christ would look to Him, would turn away from anything else they've been trusting, themselves, their sin, trust in Christ, find hope and forgiveness and life in Him. Thank You for Your mercy towards us. We bless Your name for it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses I can't get very far from, he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God bless you very greatly this week. There will be a family up here to pray with you if you'd like to. Otherwise, you are dismissed.